Hello. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore. My name is Alex Brubaker. Uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Harrisburg this evening. Uh, tonight is a very special event. Uh, it's one we've been looking forward to for quite some time. Before we begin, some light housekeeping as always. Um, I'd encourage you to take an events newsletter up at the front counter as you leave. Uh, we have a lot of exciting upcoming events uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, just a couple I'd like to promote. We have the author Dee Watkins um, and Harrisburg's own Brandon Flood in conversation in uh, uh, next week, actually, and a notable gun control activist on his plan to take down the NRA. Uh, as always, all these events are free and open to the public, so we'd love to see you back at the Scholar. Now, there's plenty of reasons why we're excited about tonight, but as a bookseller, the number one for me is we have worldwide exclusivity of this book for a week before Amazon does. So let's give it up. Uh, so before Jeff Bezos takes over the world and puts any bookstores out of business, um, we're going to bask in this one week of competitive advantage. Uh, now it is my pleasure to introduce our speaker for tonight's event. Jim Reitmulder is a founding staff member and educator at the Circle School in Harrisburg, a pioneering democratic school where he has worked for 34 years. Jim tutors students to take college entr entrance exams, plays mixed age soccer at every opportunity, and anchors the daily critical thinking discussion group. Prior to and overlapping with the Circle School's early years, Jim was a history magazine editor, business analyst, independent software developer, and a management consultant to manufacturers. Jim is married to co-founder Bethel Stone and is a father of two Circle School graduates. In his new book, When Kids Rule the School, Reit Mulder offers us a comprehensive guide to democratic schooling where kids practice life in a self-governed society, empowered as voters, bound by laws, challenged by choice, supported by community, and driven by nature. Peter Gray says the book is the clearest, most complete explanation of self-directed democratic schooling that he has ever seen, and Steve McIntosh says this book is a must-read for every educator. A huge thanks for Jim for reaching out and helping us put this event together. So without further ado, please join me in giving a warm Harrisburg welcome to Jim Reit Mulder. Thank you, Alex. This is very gratifying to see so many friendly faces and to be here to help launch this book. It's also very special to be here at Midtown Scholar for this event. And uh, as, as Alex said, I think it's also very, very cool that um, Midtown Scholar has a one-week worldwide exclusive on the book. So if you want to get the book in the next week, you got to get it here. Now, I was surprised to hear Alex say the A word because I didn't think that was allowed. I thought we had to call it the world's largest online bookseller. But at any rate, this is the place this is the place to get it. My name is Jim Reitmulder, and I'm the author of this book, When Kids Rule the School, The Power and Promise of Democratic Education. Uh, actually, I was supposed to show you a, a, a pristine copy of the book, so let me just note that, that your copy of the book will not have the post-it notes on it, un unless you order the optional upgrade. In the next 35 minutes, I want to tell you about democratic schooling, primarily by reading a few stories and passages from the book, and then we'll have time for your questions. First, a little background, though. The book is about democratic schools, which is to say schools that are run as small-scale democracies. There are three such schools in Pennsylvania, one in Philadelphia, one in Pittsburgh, and one of the oldest in the country right here in Harrisburg, the Circle School founded in 1984. 
I'm a founder of the Circle School, and I'm also an ongoing staff member there. There are dozens of other democratic schools across the country, and many more around the world, uh, especially in Europe, um, Israel, and also South America, Australia, South Africa. There's even one in Russia. And within the last few weeks, I heard from a school claiming to be the only democratic school in China. They're sending a delegation here to Harrisburg later this month to visit the Circle School. Here's a look at what's in the book. The publisher is advertising the book as the first comprehensive guide to democratic schooling. Um, I hope there's something in it for everyone. Now, when I hear the word comprehensive, I think, oh, good. That means I'm going to get what I want. I'll get a, a good, complete picture. And I also think, uh-oh, that means there's some boring stuff in here that I don't care about. Some people love the, the philosophy and the theory. Some people just want to know, how do these schools operate day to day? And some people just love to hear the personal stories. So if you read the book, or rather when you read the book, I hope you'll, you'll give me some feedback about the parts of the book that you appreciate and maybe the parts that you find boring. Got to find my clicker. Democratic schools operate with some very familiar American principles. In self-directed democratic schools, kids practice life in a microcosm of society, empowered as voters, bound by laws, challenged by choice, supported by community, and driven by nature. I want to start by reading a story about Giles and also asking a favor of you. I'm cueing myself about what I want to read. If you see me go past a slide without doing the reading, Will you wave your hand at me or call out or something so I don't miss any of these? Giles was 10 when he first came here. After a day or so, he thought it was like kindergarten. No required classes or homework. Lots of things to do, busy children moving about, and friendly adults. Time passed, and Giles changed his mind. It's not like kindergarten, he thought. It's like college, demanding rules and requirements and voluntary commitments, but no nagging parent types. Each person responsible for their actions. Groupings based on interest and attraction rather than age. Diversity in kinds and levels of skill and ability. Freely mixing. Scholarly respect for each voice and point of view. More time passed, and Giles changed his mind again. No, it's not like kindergarten, he thought. And it's not like college either. It's like life. We're free and accountable citizens in a democratic society. We make laws and we live by them, change them, or get taken to court for breaking them. We make our own decisions about what to do today, and we find our own ways, best ways of dealing with the world with all kinds of examples to learn from. That's it, thought Giles. I just come here and I live my life. 
Let's talk about how democratic schools empower students as voters. A democratic school operates as a free society and a democracy of students and staff members, embracing student civil liberties, rule of law, due process, one person, one vote, and what's surprising to many, absence of mandatory curriculum. So democratic schools operate as a scaled down version of the world beyond school. Here's a look at the structure of the Circle School, and just like democratic nations differ in their governing details, democratic schools differ one from the next in their governing details. But this is how the Circle School is organized. Let me read an excerpt that describes briefly that organization. Think of the school as a self-governing society of children, teens, and staff adults, in some ways comparable to American society scaled down. Students and staff together in school meeting govern the school community and manage school business, including funds, campus, staff, and more. A board of trustees preserves the school's democratic structure, students' civil liberties, and the school's long-term assets. Adapting principles of democratic government, the school meeting manages executive, legislative, and judicial functions. Weekly sessions of school meeting are conducted by formal parliamentary procedures. Actions generally require a simple majority vote. Each staff member and each student, regardless of age, is entitled to one vote. Staff members hold no veto power. Together, students and staff enact and maintain hundreds of laws and policies governing the school. Elected officials and committees perform administrative functions. Corporations manage designated equipment, space, and activities. Students and staff members in democratic schools are bound by laws in much the same way that adults are bound by the laws of Pennsylvania and by federal laws. I want to give you some idea of the laws, some examples of school laws. Our law book has over 200 laws in it. But first, I want to read another story. Sense and no sense. Rashida had recently heard of self-directed democratic schooling. Her daughter, Ryan, in a standard school, got good grades and conformed as a good student is supposed to. But son Brady, eight years old, wasn't motivated, she said. He was doing okay, but not thriving and not happy, and that worried Rashida. She wanted to come see this new kind of school for herself, so she made an appointment to visit along with Ryan and Brady. Rashida had read the school's literature before visiting. She was intrigued by the idea of school as a scaled-down version of the larger world, but didn't understand how it worked. She had been a conscientious A student through all her own schooling and right on through college. As a parent, she made sure her kids did their homework. If their grades faltered, she'd worry they were falling behind. 20 minutes into our conversation, Ryan and Brady were beaming. No required classes, no required testing, no required homework. They were sold. 
I hadn't yet told them we have 200 laws in our law book and they're responsible for helping to enforce them. But I knew from experience that wouldn't diminish their thrilled reaction. Is there a dress code here? Was 11-year-old Ryan's first question. Understandable for someone approaching adolescence and subject to a strict dress code in her current school. Well, I said, you have to wear clothes. <laughs> Ryan looked at her brother and both laughed nervously. Yes, I continued, but you can probably wear what you like. Malin likes to wear a wolf tail and sometimes ears to go with it. And Ashley once wore a long skirt she made entirely with colorful duct tape. There's a little more to it, I told them, launching into my community standards speech. I mentioned our laws and social norms related to the three big hot button topics, sex, drugs, and violence, and how those standards relate to clothing and other forms of expression. Dress as you choose, but if it makes people uncomfortable, perhaps because it's too revealing or the t-shirt humor is too vulgar, then you might get charged with breaking a school law. And you'll have to stop dressing that way. Or you can plead not guilty and argue your case before a jury. Basically, I concluded, it's like freedom of speech in the world beyond school, a balance of personal rights and public standards calibrated to our community of people from four years old to 19 years old and adults. By this point, Rashida was bursting. This makes perfect sense, she exclaimed, but it makes no sense at all. School that works like the real world makes perfect sense, but how do they learn? How do they get what they need? How do they get into college? What do they do all day? We talked for two hours, and they left with a lot to think about. Perfect sense and no sense. Let's look at some actual laws that we have. 2056.06, yelling, screaming, and shouting are prohibited indoors. 4409.16, stealing is prohibited. 1600.01, everybody's got a daily housekeeping chore to do. I got a permanent chore this year. It's tidying and vacuuming the conference room where my desk is located. 2419.05, if you damage something, you got to repair it or replace it, or pay for its repair or replacement. 2853.02, oh, here are two good food rules. If you order delivery food, pizza, Chinese, sushi, whatever, you've got to be at the front door when it arrives. Because if you're not, then the person who's at the front desk is going to have to stop what they're doing, figure out who ordered the food, and go find you. And another food rule, that this one dates back, I think, 15 or 20 years. There was a local pizza place that refused to deliver to school anymore because the drivers weren't getting tipped. So school meeting adopted this rule that said that made tipping mandatory, 15% or $2, whichever is greater. And we have kids of all ages who will order delivery food. It happens almost every day. So calculating the tips is a major chore for some of them. This is one of my favorites, 3653.29. Paper airplane makers must write their names on the airplanes they make. <laughs> and the idea there is if you don't clean up your mess, if you leave your litter around, 
we're going to know who's the perpetrator. The paper trader, maybe. 3653.09, the mess rule. This may be our most commonly violated rule. Basically says if you make a mess, you got to clean it up. Or when you make a mess, you got to clean it up. This one really is often violated. So what happens if a rule is broken? Well, if you break this mess rule, maybe somebody's going to come and remind you to clean it up. Or maybe somebody's, if you're really lucky, maybe somebody's going to clean it up for you. But if you make a lot of messes or you refuse to clean up your messes, then you'll probably be written up for our judicial committee, the JC. Every democratic school has either a JC, a judicial committee, or something, by the same thing basically by another name. Here we see the JC meeting in this middle picture. Everybody takes turns serving on the JC, including our youngest students. There's five-year-old Journey serving on JC at this point. I'm going to read an excerpt and a story for this one. The school's judicial system is founded on cherished American principles of individual rights, due process, and rule of law. In hundreds of cases per year, students and staff together methodically investigate allegations, gather evidence, take testimony, make findings of fact, issue indictments, arraign defendants, negotiate pleas, impose sentences, and conduct formal trials when defendants plead not guilty. The school meeting hears appeals. And I want to read you a story about a trial so you get some idea of how that goes. Mickey's Cookie and Critical Thinking. Mickey was new to the circle school. In his old school, the 13-year-old made mischief, lots of mischief. And he was well accustomed to the summary judgment of the principal. No due process there. Mickey thought he and authority were natural enemies. So he was very pleased to learn during his admissions visit that the circle school has no principal, head of school, or anything like that. I told him he has as much authority in this school as anyone else, including the adults. But of course, Mickey had no context for understanding what that meant. Mickey was also pleased to learn that when he got in trouble, as he assumed he would, he could argue his own defense before the Judicial Committee, that's the JC, composed of four students and one staff member. If, despite his best arguments, they charged him with breaking a rule anyway, he could plead not guilty and then, within four school days, argue his defense before a jury. This got Mickey's attention. He smiled and decided to enroll. His first opportunity came up very early on. He ate an Oreo cookie in the library, violating a rule about where it's okay to eat and where it's not. Called to JC, he readily admitted eating the cookie and also agreed with witnesses who said they had told him not to eat the cookie in the library, but he did so anyway. He and the JC discussed why the rule forbids food and eating in the library having to do with messes, ants, and mice. After that, Mickey said, oh, well, he had actually put the entire cookie in his mouth, so there was no possibility of crumbs, and he shouldn't be charged with breaking the rule. Good thinking, I suppose, but not persuasive, and maybe not honest. 
The JC charged Mickey with breaking the rule. As is common with new students, they gave him a warning instead of sentencing him and then asked for his plea. Not guilty, said Mickey. And so the case went to trial with stakes of principle and pride, but not punishment. Mickey worked hard on his defense for the next couple of days, including significant research. In a packed courtroom, addressing the six jurors, that's five students and one staff member, he laid out his case. Now, you have to listen carefully to this part to follow his logic. Food, he said, is an edible substance with nutritional value. <laughs> and he read a dictionary definition to back him up. Then he called attention to the nutritional label on the Oreo package. There is some nutritional value in an Oreo cookie, he said, but not much. However, by his calculation, if a person ate less than half a cookie, they would ingest less than 1% of the government-recommended daily value of every nutrient on the label. Furthermore, percentages less than 1% are shown as 0%. With a charming grin, Mickey then testified that he had taken only one bite, amounting to less than a third of the cookie. That meant he had consumed less than 1% of the daily value of every nutrient, which translates to 0%. Thus, having no nutritional value, it wasn't food after all, and he had not violated the rule. The defense rested its case. The jury was, shall we say, confused. In our system, Jurors have an opportunity to question witnesses. My favorite moment in Mickey's trial was when the youngest juror, five-year-old Leo, penetrated the fog and went right to the heart of the matter with his incredulous question for Mickey. You ate a cookie in the library? <laughs> the prosecution neglected to note the discrepancy in Mickey's testimony. To the JC, he testified he ate the whole cookie. In trial, he testified he ate only a small bite. It didn't matter. The jury took only a few minutes to find Mickey guilty. As Leo's question aptly highlighted, the case was as black and white as an Oreo cookie. Enough about government, let's talk about what else goes on in democratic schools. In the next few slides, I'm going to show a lot of uh, some pictures of what happens at school, and I just want to note that these pictures are not in the book. These are all pictures from the Circle School. Everything else you see in the presentation is directly out of the book. Let me read the excerpt. Within this distinctly democratic milieu, students pursue activities of their own choosing or creation. Constrained by imagination and school laws, 
but not by curriculum or adult demands. For example, they may hang out with friends, build a fantasy world with wooden blocks, organize a math class, work at a community externship, do nothing, play capture the flag outdoors, browse the web, build a virtual world in a cyber simulation, earn money doing extra chores, obsess over social media and pop culture, write a blog post, attend Spanish classes, produce a video, run a committee meeting, organize a blues band, paint a mural, take apart a microwave oven, operate a business, teach a friend to apply makeup, learn chess, make and sell baked goods, create a school corporation, prepare to take college entry exams, advocate for legislation, give an election campaign speech, put on a play, organize a week-long backpacking expedition, build a Tesla coil, and so on from daily novelty to creative infinity. Furthermore, students may spend mere minutes on an activity or an entire day, or they may immerse themselves in a passionate interest for months on end. Importantly, students also break school laws, get in trouble, experience rudeness, try out dishonesty, cause damage, experiment with vulgarity, test limits, and so on from frequent novelty to transgressive infinity, a scaled-down rendition of the larger world indeed. Here we see a variety of activities, somebody looking through a microscope, two boys doing electric circuits, someone who's trying to organize a debate team, someone who has organized a writing class, somebody doing a chore, and Mira in the library reading a book quietly. If you, pref if you prefer to be outdoors, lots of choices outdoors. Every democratic school, of course, has a unique campus. The Circle School is, is blessed with eight acres, lots of space outdoors, and there's a, a tremendous amount of outdoor activity. Fort building is a perennial favorite, scooters and skateboards. We do lots of Lots of outdoor games, multi-age games. So this looks like it could be Capture the Flag or maybe Tribes. Giant snowball that's about to get pushed to the top of a large hill and then down the other side. We have a gardening corporation that just planted a small garden. Fine arts pursued by many students. Piano, drawing, group about to go caroling at the neighboring retirement community. Sculpture that a student made, and, and actually it's for sale here. Uh, Caitlin performing at the Spring Gala, which is coming up this Saturday, by the way. And Clayton teaching guitar and Amelia learning guitar. Cooking is always popular at most democratic schools. Lots of other activities, Sadie building a rocket, uh, face painting, somebody doing a construction project, and this is a this is an image of the the science corporation science equipment. And Kaylin has is working with something that she took off the science equipment shelf, and another project there in the lower left corner. 
The folks in the upper left there are looking very happy because they're judging a cookie contest. This is a group that worked for two years to raise money and plan an elaborate field trip, and they're about to depart on that field trip. Evelyn is our chore checker, posting a notice. And there's Ray doing his chore. And Ray also appearing before a meeting of the chore committee, applying for a permanent chore. You have to do a good job on your chore to get a permanent chore. And then in the middle is Gwen practicing CPR. And the, the, uh, we have a, a group we call the responder team. These are folks who each year, we have a group that um, gets trained in first aid, CPR, and AED operation. And then they do an apprenticeship with our medical officer, get elected by school meeting to be responders, able to respond to minor injuries, cuts and bruises, bumps. They do a lot of TLC. We have a free enterprise system, open commerce. So here's Gavin is selling sodas for a dollar a can. And I think my all-time favorite commercial venture is indi indicated here. I'm not, whoops, let me go back there. My all-time favorite, if, in case you can't see it, this is somebody who's selling vomit, fake vomit, for 25 cents a pack. And, and if, you, if you see, he's got a whole box full of it there. So, so he, he bought it in bulk. Wholesale vomit. Everybody needs some portable vomit, right? So the, the bottom line is that the circle school will throw up no barriers to entrepreneurship. <laughs> oh, almost went past the reading for this one. Watching young children figure out IOUs is entertaining. They already understand the concept of selling and buying. You give someone money and you get something good in return. In the classic first encounter with a vendor's offer to take an IOU, the child is amazed and confused. All I have to do is write IOU, some numbers, and my name? and you'll give me an ice cream sandwich? How cool is that? No amount of explaining seems to burst that bubble of delight. A day or so later, when the vendor tries to get them to pay up, the child has no idea what they're talking about. Why should I give you money? I already gave you the IOU. If the child remembers that much, the vendor just might collect the payment. But sometimes it's too late the price of an ice cream lost in the dreamy fog of a four-year-old's yesterdays. Savvy sellers don't take IOUs. <laughs> the value and importance of community in children's lives today is it's, it's vital. There's so much to say about it. I'm going to read a, a short excerpt stitched together actually from several places in the book because I want to make sure we make this point. In a world tilting towards narcissism, nihilism, and alienation, community may be crucial. Community tends to socialize people to societal norms, such as by mitigating raw impulses and curbing antisocial behaviors. 
But there's more to community than its civilizing influence and its practical training in life skills. Immersion in community is a primal state with roots as deep as humanity itself. Absence of community is surely a root cause of today's political antagonism, resurging tribalism, and violence born of alienation. Now a little bit about theory and, the, and context and history. And don't worry, it won't be long enough to put you to sleep. For that, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> Self-directed education, such as democratic schooling, rests on a power of nature. Children's inborn impulse to strive, thrive, and grow. Spend time with children, and you see it in their boundless energy, fits of frustration, inspired mischief, and radiant joy. It's the sustainable energy of education. Agency is a word coming into its own these days. Agency is the capacity to choose and act on your own behalf, and maybe a hallmark of life. A rock just sits there, but living creatures can do things, can take actions. Even bacteria detect and move towards nutrients, taking action in a primitive sort of agency. In human beings, agency is conscious and even self-conscious. We can reflect on our choices, actions, and experience, and learn. We can retain what works and drop what doesn't, adapting and evolving ourselves in a lifelong practice of self-authorship. If agency is a distinguishing feature of life in general, reflective agency may be a distinguishing feature of humanity. Agency is like muscle, stronger with work, weaker without. Just as physical inactivity weakens muscles, chronic restraint of children's choice and action weakens their ability to choose and act. Inactivity and restraint are sometimes necessary or wise, but greatest growth is prompted by conditions in which choice and action are exercised, constrained by limits of safety and society. That last part, constraints, is worth emphasizing. Agency is biologically installed, but its actions may or may not lead to good outcomes. Unbridled pursuit of inborn impulses is unlikely to work out well in the long run. The opportunities and taming influences of community and societal structure are crucial and central in human experience. Just so, at the heart of self-directed democratic schooling is the bounded freedom of agency in community. In this setting, nature and culture mix and merge, stirring a uniquely personal stew of existential and situational challenges, stimulating satisfying growth. Instead of the brute force of conventional education, democratic schooling channels natural forces to drive development. If I explain this one in full, everybody will be asleep. So again, I'm going to read 
a short section from the book. Rather than reject what came before, democratic schooling embraces a legacy of strengths. From traditional worldviews, democratic schools inherit values of law and order, civic duty, and tradition. From modern and progressive worldviews, democratic schools inherit values of progress, science, technology, and individualism. From the postmodern, democratic schools inherit values of inclusion, cultural pluralism, compassion, global community, and renewed spirituality. Fill a bucket could be a guiding metaphor for traditional schooling, typically serving agrarian times and places. Teachers poured knowledge into students, but a century of science debunked that idea. Knowledge is not a substance, and learning is nothing like filling an empty vessel. Now we know that knowledge is constructed by the learner, the outcome of an internal process. The child must be engaged to build knowledge, and engagement is best when secured by the child's personal interest and intrinsic motivation. In modern schooling, the metaphor of filling a bucket was replaced with another, light a fire. Perhaps you've heard the William Butler Yeats quote, education is the lighting of a fire, not the filling of a pail. The idea has inspired millions of teachers and shaped classroom practices in modern schools. As suggested in this metaphor, the teacher sparks interest in a curricular objective, lighting the fire, and then leads students to construct the prescribed knowledge and insights. Then the teacher repeats the process, lighting another fire for the next curricular objective, and so on for 12 years through a predetermined chain of curricular objectives. The aim is to harness the power of children's curiosity, an essential condition for meaningful learning. You may already know the problems with that. Too often the student's fires fizzle, and too often the teacher burns out. In light of fire, we got the fire part right, the importance of children's spirited engagement. What we got wrong is thinking the teacher has to ignite it. Children are born with fires ablaze, passionate and persistent in pursuit of their universal agenda, strive, thrive, and grow. It's the sustainable energy of education. Embracing what we now know about children's development, integral education suggests a new metaphor, fan a flame. The fires are already burning. Democratic schools engage children's natural curiosity and tendency to strive, thrive, and grow. Instead of trying to stimulate the same interest in a room full of children all at once, democratic schools set each, children, each student free to follow their interests like stepping stones. Just like life beyond school, each student picks out a path determined by their interests, needs, abilities, opportunities, and choices powered by fires burning from birth. Self-powered and immersed in community, rather than goaded by teachers, children's lives and learning in democratic schools are more fulfilling and meaningful from day to day. Life satisfaction is not postponed until tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, nor subordinated to a curriculum that may or may not be relevant in an unpredictable future.
One more story and then we'll move on to questions. No more chores. Some people just don't like to do chores. Feeling their democratic power one day, they brought it to school meeting, a motion to repeal the law that requires everyone to do a chore. Some were opposed, saying that without daily chores, the school would be one great big mess. But word of the proposal had spread, and what started as hopeless grumbling escalated into a full-scale populist reform movement. <laughs> the meeting was packed, and it was clear that they weren't going to take no for an answer. And anyway, the thought of freedom from chores is appealing to everyone, isn't it? After much discussion, the motion was amended to make it a two-week trial instead of a permanent change. That was the compromise that gave everyone enough of what they wanted. It passed with a large majority and became school law. Chores were out. Hooray, we're free. Alas, the reality was less glorious than the fantasy. Elves did not show up in dark of night to put things away, wipe the tables, replenish the toilet paper, and remove from the refrigerator whatever that smelly gray thing was. By the end of the two weeks, even the anti-chore voters held their noses and agreed that we needed to go back to daily chores. But we tried. We've been there and done that. That was 20-some years ago. The chore system hasn't been challenged again. But maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Thank you. Alex will take some questions now, and I'm going to get out from behind this podium. I feel like a preacher over there. Maybe here I'll feel more like the stand-up comic or something. But anyway, if you have questions. a question, if you have a question, just raise your hand, and I'll come around to you with the mic. Hi. Thanks for sharing about your um, your school. Uh, I want to ask you about sort of the admissions process. Um, there, I'm sure you've heard there's some critiques about, you know, having such an idealist community being sort of exclusive to a certain class of people or elitist in a way, and I'm wondering what you have to say to that. The Circle School, like most democratic schools, has an open admissions policy, and what that means is that we have two criteria for admissions, and only two. One is that both the school and the family think that the child is, will be able to thrive at the circle school. And the other is that the, the child has to want to be there. If a child says, I don't want to be here, they may have no incentive to uh, follow the rules or uh, join in the community in other ways. So it's an open admissions policy. You ask about exclusivity. Another way of answering that question is that we know from studies that we've done that the uh, the income profile of our families very closely, almost exactly matches the income profile of the area that we're serving. That is to say, about a 30-minute drive time from the school. So we know that about 30% of our families have household incomes of under $35,000 a year. This is not a market traditionally served by non-public schools, by independent schools. 
We know that about 55% of our families have household incomes of under $50,000. We know that only about 10 to 12% have in household incomes of over 100K a year. So we know that we are, we're very closely matching the region that we're serving. And that's a crucial part. Thank you for asking the question. That's a crucial part of the Circle Schools mission. We have always had, had two missions. One is to run a school according to certain principles. But the second piece of it is to do so in a way that, uh, that could be replicated, adapted, rolled out. It is not our purpose to simply uh, promote independent schools. Uh, we would like to see, I would like to see democratic schooling available to every family. Thanks for the question. Thank you. I appreciate this. I'm looking forward to reading your book. Uh, one question I had is, what is the role of a staff member at the Circle School besides participating in the governance structure that you talked about? Great question. And you, you picked out an area that I chose not to address in this presentation. There is a long section in the book that tries to get at it. But it's, it's very difficult to capture the role of a staff member. There is, no, there is no uniform role that would apply to every staff member. I would say, though, collectively, staff keep the school running. So anything that nobody else wants to do uh, would fall to staff. Students and staff together are running the school, and students, so students participate in every aspect of school administration. Um, but there's some things that, uh, that students don't want to do and some things that, um, that are acknowledged as, as tasks that, that uh, adults need to do. So for example, I was elected this year as admissions director and I have been elected as admissions director for many years in a row. Part of that is, is because, um, well, it's very simple, it's because I got a majority vote. But, but more a, a deeper way of looking at it is that it's pretty clear that, that to relate to families with children we need to have an adult sitting across the table from the from the parents. So the roles the roles of adults, and I'm I'm just touching the tip of an iceberg here. Um, staff members are available resources. Our staff collectively hold teaching certifications for all of the grade levels we have, which is preschool through high school, and for all of the the uh, standard curriculum subjects. So their staff members are resources both for their own area of knowledge, but most staff members also have many other interests that may be unrelated to curricular things. Um, I could go on and on about staff role, but uh, that'll give you some, some idea of what it is. But just one more piece, and I think that one of the most important qualifications for our staff is that, that staff are all people who enjoy being in community with children and find fulfillment and meaning in working with children and in community with children. Yes. Uh, hi. Uh, it's recently been reported that 6% of teachers nationwide have been assaulted by students and 10% of teachers nationwide have been threatened. Um, it, it seems more that, the, that when kids go to school, it's more like the school in New Jersey. We're doing a ride in the school. Uh, a, a girl was videotaped kicking a cop in the head. Um, how, I can, uh, you're, 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 uh, what you're proposing would work fine in like the New York City's top math and science school that has a quarter of the population as being, you know, as being poor, but, but the biggest problem is that it doesn't have any black or Hispanic students. Do you think that you can actually expand your school uh, to anything more than just a small percentage of the population? Is the, the democratic schooling model scalable, I think is the question I'm hearing. And especially 
in view of uh, the awful tensions that exist in, in some schools. Um, I don't have any experience with schools that have a thousand students in them, so I can't speak directly from experience, but you ask about urban populations as one example. We do know that there are democratic schools in urban areas. There are democratic schools in very rural areas. So when we look at the, the movement of democratic schools worldwide, we see a tremendous variety of settings in which democratic schools are successful. As to uh, student assaults on teachers, if a student wanted to, um, had a grudge against me, it would be easier for them to go to school meeting and, and vote me out. <laughs> uh, literally, school meeting is our chief executive. So uh, any Wednesday morning when school meeting meets, in theory, someone could put up a motion to fire Jim. Now, I have been around for 35 years, so I feel a little bit of job security. But the point is it's government of the people who are being governed. And so the alienation and the separation, I think, that leads to a lot of the tension uh, is unlikely to be as strong in democratic schooling. I would love to see an experiment in larger schools to test exactly what you're saying. Kansas City actually won a judgment. Kansas City School District actually won a judgment against the state uh, where they actually got, a, got so much money that they spent more money per student than any other public school in, in the country. And um, they, the judgment was because they couldn't do anything to, to close the achievement gap. And after all this, all this money spending, including an Olympic-sized pool and, and greenhouses, the, the achievement gap actually widened. That was the uh, Cato uh, money in, uh, Cato even did a paper about it. I, I want to add that the, the democratic schooling is not antagonistic or opposing in any way to, uh, to public schooling. Um, rather, I think the movement is, is modeling something that's possible on a, on a wider scale. Also, um, in, in the schools you're talking about, uh, well, in all public schools, the issue is not, is not teachers. There's no quality of teacher issue at all. It's the system itself. And I think w we see a lot of teachers coming to visit the circle school, teachers in conventional classroom settings. And they express as much frustration with their situations as, as anybody else, as outsiders see. The issue is not teachers, it's the system. The si a system that was designed uh, in the 1800s, f uh, largely in the industrial era, industrial revolution era, and uh, it doesn't fit today's values and uh, we, we're no longer looking for the conformity and the uniformity that were part of the design of, of the public schools. Teachers are stuck in it as much as students. Any other questions? Um, when you were telling your story about the, um, the no rules, uh, the no chores situation, um, and I was thinking of that, and then when someone asked you about the staff, I mean, I'm curious, I know people who would, they would have um, a little uh, difficulty with that moldy gray stuff in the, in, the, in the refrigerator. So do you attract people who are like, you know, I can deal with that because I'm sure there's some, 
there are some challenges that occur in a democratic school, or do, does the experience of working there or being a student there change them to be more open, to be more fl flexible, or able to, to handle the moldy stuff? <laughs> Our aesthetics committee and tour committees drive me nuts. They are not okay with the gray, moldy things. They are meticulous. They are tedious to deal with sometimes. They, are, um, they insist on chores being done uh, extremely properly. There are a couple of members of that committee sitting here, and I'm, I may take some heat for this later, but, but they do an excellent job of, of keeping the school neat. Everybody has a daily housekeeping chore to do. The chore committee trains a core of chore checkers these are people who are thoroughly trained by the chore committee to a ridiculous degree. And after you do your chore each day, you've got to go find a chore checker and get them to check your chore. Unless you've done your chore brilliantly well for months, and then they will excuse you from getting your chore checked. But one year I'm remembering, my chore checker was an eight-year-old girl. And that's pretty young to achieve the status of a chore checker, which is a pretty big deal and takes a lot of training. At that time, I think she had to learn the standards for about, oh, 80 or 90 chores so she could check any chore. So she would check my chore, and every day that kid would go over to the trash basket. She would pick it up and look under it to make sure I had vacuumed under the wastebasket. <laughs> so no, we don't attract people who are casual regarding um, messes and untidiness. We have all kinds. I mean. It, it's a, a very general population. We do have a system, if a room is messy at the end of the day and you, can't, you don't know who the perpetrator is, then the person who, this, this, would, this would be a staff member, the staff member who is closing up the building for the day can close a room. Put a sign on it that says room closed. And then the next day, nobody can go in the room except for the purpose of cleaning it up. And so those who want to clean up or insist on it being cleaned up can go do it, and those who just can't stand cleaning up can avoid that room. There was one time when every room in the building was closed. That was, that's happened once in our history and that was an interesting morning. Uh, hi. Um, I am wondering what kind of uh, pedagogical issues uh, your school is having in terms of like learning, motivation of children and what are the approaches that uh, you take? What are the pedagogical issues we have? Do we have problems with motivation? And um, Democratic schools support all sorts of learning teaching methods, but we have no required curriculum. So a student can go through the circle school and never take a standard math class, for example pedagogical issues. People learn very differently. In, in traditional schools, the, uh, the pedagogical idea is to teach all students in the classroom the same subject at the same time in the same way. We're not bound by that. So students can, can learn in any variety of ways and at, and at, any, uh, at any point in their development. We, um, we don't segregate children by age. We have age mixing, which means that people from four years old to about 19 years old are all in one population. Um, and so one important learning method is that 
that students may gravitate to other students who have something to teach them, not in a formal teaching mode, but an informal teaching mode. The, the book includes uh, lists 16 learning, teaching learning methods that are enabled by democratic schooling that aren't possible in conventional schools. Um, but that gives you some idea of, of pedagogical issues. Hi, up here. Um, I'm wondering if you could share your elevator pitch for helping uh, skeptical people to understand what you're doing. I'm I'm a unschooling homeschooler. We don't live close by. Um, uh, my friends and I came from Williamsport. We don't have a democratic school option in our city, and um, so we're doing it as best we can in our home. And um, right now, my elevator pitch requires an extremely tall building. So I'm just wondering, um, I get a lot of skepticism, a lot of concern. Um, particularly, people are very worried about my children learning math. That does seem to come up quite a bit. So just wondering how you kind of can encapsulate this in a reasonable amount of time. <laughs> Interesting question. Well, you just saw my elevator pitch, and it was a very tall building. <laughs> I don't have a single elevator pitch. I mean, after 35 years, you might think I do, but, but I think I, maybe I have 15 or 20 elevator pitches, depending on, on um, the person I'm talking to, the context, and so on. As an unschooler, I would think I don't have to give you much of an elevator pitch. The, the elevator pitch for an unschooler would be, democratic schooling has been compared to unschooling in school. What unschooling lacks is community exposure. One of the things that parents can't give to their children is independence from them, independence from home and family. And that's something I think that unschoolers wrestle with. So if you and I were in an elevator, that's what I'd say to you. You don't have to give it to me. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. Democratic schools share a lot of principles with self-directed education generally. So there, there are many forms of self-directed education of which democratic schooling is just one. Uh, so some of the value of this book for you might be in, in pulling out those principles of self-directed education that very much apply to unschooling in the same way they apply to democratic schooling. Question to your left. Hello, thank you for being here. This is a really great talk. Um, so I have a question about um, the curriculum and uh, subjects that students would learn. So I understand that it's self-directed. I'm wondering about the idea of you don't know what you don't know, and with it being self-directed, how students are exposed to certain topics and um, topics that maybe every kid should learn, or at least in my opinion, for instance, like the Holocaust, right? Are students taught about that? Is there a structure for students to learn about certain topics like that? Or is it just if they come across it because other students are learning about it? How do kids get exposed to things they otherwise would not get exposed to? Is that the gist of it? Well, first of all, in, in conventional schooling, uh, the, the standard curriculum includes Oh, 15 or 20 subjects, and um, no more than that. 
in a democratic schooling, the, the, the curriculum is open-ended, in effect. The, there, there can be thousands of, of subjects available. Um, so that's one piece, that, that when, when compared with conventional curriculum, democratic schooling is wide open. Students can and do get exposure to many more things than they would in the conventional curriculum. Um, another way of answering it is involves the age mixing that I already mentioned um, and the community aspect. I think of, of democratic schools as having a high bandwidth. When you walk into a democratic school, you won't find a classroom of 20 silent children listening to an adult. I wouldn't, you'd never see anything like this. <laughs> that's not quite true, but, but generally that's not what you see. What you see is, is um, people talking all the time, talking, talking, talking. So the cultural bandwidth, the volume of information exchange in a democratic school is much higher than in conventional schools. And what that means is that, that um, you have somebody who is who is excited about a particular subject, and that's going to spread like a contagion through that, that child's friend group, which again includes students of many different ages, so it may get carried to other places in the, in the culture. That's the, that's the short answer, the, but the exposure issue, I think democratic schools have a big advantage over conventional schools when it comes to exposing children to a huge array of subjects. Thank we you. are running out of time, so we, does anyone have a one last question? Yes. Just curious, Jim, how many times have you been written up since you've been at the Circle School? <laughs> I don't know how many times, but I'll tell you about the last time. That's the one I'm remembering. It was, um, it may have been last fall or maybe last school year, but... Um, Someone found a, a beautiful piece of quartz on the property. Lots of sharp edges to it, maybe about this big. And I noticed that they had brought it inside and they put it on, um, in a cubby, a wooden cubby, where it was scratching the wood pretty badly. So not knowing whose it was, I picked it up and I carried it outdoors and set it down outdoors. An hour later, it was back inside in a, in a different cubby. But again, it was scratching the wood and, and um, causing damage. So again, I picked it up and carried it outside. And again, like the cat came back, the, the, the quartz was back in the cubbies again. So that time, I took it out, and I took it to the edge of the property, the, which is wooded, and I tossed it out in the woods, maybe six or eight feet. Well. Uh, and I did discover whose it was, and I wrote them up for judicial committee. Well, in judicial committee, I told my story indignantly about how this, the cubby was getting damaged and I was protecting it from damage. And then someone said, well, isn't there a rule against throwing things outside the boundaries? And there is. There is indeed a rule that originated in students. We had a, 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 an evergreen tree with lots of pine cones under it, and they would take them, and they'd pitch them out onto the neighbor's blacktop, which infuriated the neighbor. And so a law was passed. You can't throw things out of bounds. So I threw the rock out of bounds, and I was charged with breaking that rule. Can we give one more round of applause for Jim? Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for being here. Thank you.